0: Hello and welcome to Cinematicon Ex Mortis, the podcast where we talk about horror movies. I'm your host, Kenny, and I'm here with Heather. Hello. Hello to you as well. (laughs) Um, So uh, for the first movie that we're going to be talking about with Heather, we're looking at Misery, the film from 1990, directed by Rob Reiner, um, adapted by William Goldman, from the Stephen King novel of the same title, starring Kathy Bates and James Caan. And we're going to be uh, spoiling the whole plot as we talk about it, so, you know, go watch it, or don't, I, I don't care. Um, do you care, Heather? No. Okay, so it doesn't matter really to us whether you watch the film first or not, but... If you don't watch it, be aware that we're going to say what happens.
1: And if you didn't watch it first, like, why do you care? Yeah. Why do you care about this?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, sometimes I'll watch, like, a review of something that I haven't seen just because I I like the it's reviewer. dangerous. So if you really like us, I, but you don't care about the movie, <laughs> you know, or, like, <laughs> I, I made you listen to this because mm-hmm. I'm like, listen to my podcast, please, you know. But really, I don't care. Um, So if I said that to you, you can just turn it off now. (laughs) That's fine. Anyway, so Misery is uh, a really cool horror movie. (laughs) What? (laughs) Nothing. Go on. We've watched it several times, both of us, right? Sure. Yeah. And um, it's... uh, I don't know if I would say it's one of my favorite horror movies of all time, but... Um, I think Kathy Bates' performance is definitely one of the great horror movie performances of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's really cool that it's as good as it is, too, given that it's directed by Rob Reiner, who isn't really known for horror movies. Yeah, I
1: just realized that, actually, right now. Like, that didn't really click to me when I was watching it, like, when his name popped up. But, like, that is kind of weird, isn't it?
0: Yeah, because he did uh, Spinal Tap and uh, the princess bride when harry met sally so right. he's kind of known like, for this like is lighthearted so comedies
1: like out of nowhere like yeah. he went completely the opposite direction
0: yeah from his earlier work which is great i mean those are some of the classic comedies so it's not surprising mm-hmm. that he could make a great film but it's just it doesn't seem like it's in his wheelhouse and then as far as i know he hasn't gone back to the genre either which is something that i think is kind of cool about horror it's one of the things i like about the genre is A lot of the classic movies in the genre are not from people like Wes Craven who just do that. A lot of them are from people who are just sort of like dip their toe in once like The Shining by Kubrick. Like that's the only horror movie Kubrick ever made. Um, There's a lot of directors like that who are like great directors who make a bunch of different things and then they just make one horror movie and it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of those. Maybe we should say a little about the, the plot. Okay. Okay, so... Um,
1: In case people really didn't watch the movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, so could you give like a little uh, No, that's, that's not a good job
1: for me. You go ahead and take that one.
0: Okay, so um, this is uh, the story of a writer, Paul Sheldon, um, who is a writer of romance novels. It's clearly a sort of author insert character for Stephen King, um, but King writes horror novels. This character writes romance novels, you know, same difference. And uh, he has just finished up the Misery series of books um, and is writing now sort of the novel that he really wanted to write, the more personal novel that's not a romance novel. Um, And as he finishes up at the beginning of the film, he drives down a mountain in, I don't know, Colorado someplace, snowy, and the car... In
1: a gorgeous Mustang, by the way.
0: Okay, it's very important. Um, Fuck off. And uh, he drives the car right off the road and is rescued by uh, Kathy Bates's character, Annie Wilkes, um, who turns out is a sort of deranged uh, stalker. She's his number one fan. And instead of taking him to a hospital, she brings him to her house and he ends up being sort of imprisoned in her house. At first, you know, under the guise that she's just nursing him back to health until the phone lines come back online and she can, the roads are open and she can take him to the hospital. But it increasingly becomes clear that he's not getting out of there unless he can escape. Um, so it's one of these movies where a character is sort of trapped in an environment and has to figure out how do I get out of here which I think is a really neat like subgenre I really enjoy those kind of movies like, like what like cube or saw or oh yeah you know movies where people are trapped somewhere and they have to try to escape try to figure out it's like a puzzle almost
1: you know saw is like really funny it's like so funny
0: the original or the whole series
1: the original I don't hmm. know about the rest of them but I watched it just like a couple years ago again and like was laughing the entire time
0: I need to re-watch that one. I only saw it in the theater when it came out. I
1: really recommend that you do.
0: Okay. Hilarious. Yeah. And, like, unintentionally hilarious?
1: Um, yeah. I think so. I don't know. I don't even get it. It's just wildly hilarious. I don't even know.
0: Yeah. Well, that could be another connection to this film, because in addition to being, I think, really suspenseful and at times disturbing... Uh, Misery is also quite funny, I think. So that's something that carries over from Reiner's comedy work, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you, you mentioned that before we watched it, about it being really funny. And it was funny in a different way than I expected. Hmm. Like, all the quips that he makes when she's, like, being insane. <laughs> He's just, like, so burnt out, almost. He's just like, oh, you know, this is great. And, like, oh, a view. Or, you know, it's like... So funny. I was expecting her to be funnier, because I remember aspects of her character that were funny. Yeah. Like how she doesn't swear, and says other things instead that are like really silly.
0: Yeah, like cockadoodie. Right. <laughs> yeah. I yeah that's something I want to talk about more. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think Annie is funny, but yeah, she's funny like unintentionally, like we laughing at her. Whereas Paul Sheldon, part of what makes him likable is that he keeps his sense of humor throughout the whole whole ordeal. Yeah,
1: I have a note about that. It says, I said, his smart-ass remarks are the best part of this film. I love that he refuses to break. Like, even though she destroys, like, his body, basically. And, like, she destroys his work. Yeah. And he still refuses to, like... Let her really win, you know.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Like he, his, he's like bodily enfeebled for you know most of the runtime of the film. Mm-hmm. But she never really like gets in. She never right. like she thinks that she's you know made him change his mind and become you know convinced that killing misery off was terrible and the new novel with its swear words is terrible but that's totally not true at all she never really um, convinces him of anything except for what a lunatic she is
1: that's like a trope that happens in different movies Is like the captor or the
0: like stockholm syndrome
1: yeah like they they try they can they trick their captor into thinking that they're, like, on the same page and that, like, oh, "Oh, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, yes, you know, and, like, kind of, like, plays into their game. And and then the captor always buys it, like, always. Yeah. And I'm just like, what? Like, obviously they're going to pull this trick with you. Like, you know, step one, convince my captor that I have seen the error of my ways and, you know, now see things their way and, like, they always fall for it. I mean, it it usually blows up and goes wrong, but they do initially fall for it every time.
0: Yeah. Well, well, that's something I really like about this movie is like Annie Wilkes turns out to be like this amazingly uh, uh, complicated character where I feel like she has sort of levels to her delusion. Like um, on one level, she is trying to convince herself that Paul Sheldon is in love with her and that they're going to live happily ever after. He's going to write his new book just for her and so forth. And this is like the, the source of all her joy in life, right? Is this, you know, thing that she's got going with, with Paul Sheldon. And on another level, she knows perfectly well that from his perspective, she's a lunatic and she's he's being kept uh, hostage and he wants to get out. Um, and she can sort of juggle those things at the same time so she's paying attention to oh he got out of his room and hides that information from him until much later in the film Mm -hmm. that she realized that he got out um and uh you know she's she can be very duplicitous and sneaky as well um and sort of play along with the game in ways where she already knows that you know he's lying or whatever um so I find that that, I don't know, her character and her, her unpredictability is really the, the source of a lot of the horror in the film and a lot of the um, suspense. Like she has all these moments where I love, this is what I, one thing I love about Kathy Bates' performance is that she, well, often when Sheldon says or does something that could possibly offend her, or, you know, it's a sort of gambit that he's, he's making, her reaction begins with this just totally blank expression, and the camera just holds on her sort of blank expression mm, yeah. for a beat, and then she'll either be like, oh, that's, you know, amazing, I love that, or she'll fly into a rage, right. and you never know which it's going to be.
1: Yeah, totally. She's very unpredictable. And there's, like, that one scene where I feel like it's the only scene where she's, like, really herself. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. You don't.
0: What scene? The you scene think?
1: where it's like, it's, it's raining outside? Mm, when she gets all depressed. Yes. And I feel like that was like her real moment of like transparency. Hmm. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. When she just sort of says, you know, the rain makes me feel all oogie. I'm going to, I have this gun. Yeah. I'm going to put bullets in it. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And just walks out.
1: Right. It's, like, so ominous, but it's, like, maybe she doesn't even know what she's gonna do, you know?
0: Yeah. So, anyway, on the the bonus features of the home video release, there's this uh, featurette with a... Clinical psychologist analyzing the character, and I she basically says this: that. this isn't really any kind of realistic depiction of a specific mental illness. Yeah, I was. Instead, gonna she's say... got like every mental illness in the book. Oh. so she's manic depressive. You know, she's like bipolar. That's that mm-hmm. right where she's like manic a lot of the time, and then when it rains and she gets really mm-hmm. depressed, she's like suddenly has like no energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, of course, she's also delusional. She's also a psychopath. She also is a serial killer. Um as we find out uh, when he looks through her scrapbook and sees all the various uh-huh. victims that she's had in the past um, and uh, so she, yeah, she kind of has like this laundry list of of mental illnesses that probably a normal normal serial killers and, and like an actual person that that uh, uh-huh. you would encounter um, wouldn't have. it's like sort of whatever the script needs at that moment. Yeah, um, so I don't know. If that's a knock against the film, exactly. Um,
1: you you would have liked to have seen more consistency.
0: Or more like a like a realistic depiction of, you know, a crazy yeah. killer. Um, but uh, I, like I said, I don't know if that's a it's that's a problem with the film. Like it's kind of neat that you can't predict what's going to happen with her from scene to scene. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that I think um, saves the film from. Being boring, like a film where a character is stuck in the same room for the most of the runtime, mostly by himself, could get boring. But this one, I don't think ever does. There's always no. something happening.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's very. It. There's a lot of anxiety. Like yeah. So much anxiety. You you desperately want to know what's going to happen next, which is actually really like. That's incredible, like you said, for a a movie that takes place in, like, one room, mostly. Like, that's pretty remarkable to pull that off. But the music plays a lot in with that, too, and I wrote that down. Like, that music is so intense, and it just, like, like, you hold your breath, you know?
0: Yeah, the music by Mark Shaman, the composer, who, let's see, he also wrote the music for Hairspray. So, Uh yeah, a lot of talented people on this, not just Rob Reiner and uh, James Caan and (laughs) Kathy Bates, but also um, the uh, writer of the screenplays, William Goldman, who wrote a ton of classic movies. uh, Mm -hmm. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men, uh, Princess Bride, which uh, also Rob Reiner. So that's probably where they worked together before. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, a lot of things going right. I thought the music was good. Um, it's a little overactive at times for my taste. Um,
1: maybe I'm just like really simple and I need, I need the music to tell me what's going on.
0: Yeah, maybe you're dumb. <laughs>
1: uh, you're an asshole.
0: <laughs> but uh, I mean, maybe I'm dumb too. I mean, and I'm just not getting it because I do feel like this movie is, and this ties into the like over exaggerated uh, psychosis of uh, Annie Wilkes. I think the film is sort of deliberately over the top in a lot of ways. Um, also, with the sound design, um, it's it's almost cartoonish at at certain moments. Like um, I notice uh, this time watching that uh, when Paul hides a butcher knife in his cast or is like under his uh, sleeve, when he like pulls it out, he's like practicing pulling it out. It goes shink, even <laughs> though like. It's only touching (laughs) cloth. Like, when you Mm. rub a knife against cloth, it doesn't really do that. That's one of Roger Ebert's movie rules. He had a bunch of, like, rules of the movies, like how things are going to work in movies that are different from real life. And one of them is that a knife, just by being on screen, can make a shink sound. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually have to rub against some other metal object
1: and, um, and his role was that it shouldn't do that or it has to do that.
0: <laughs> I think his movie rules were just like humorous observations oh, okay. about things that happen in movies that aren't realistic or, you know, uh, rules that are exclusive to storytelling on film. And um, another moment like that is at the very end um, when uh, James Caan and, and Kathy Bates have their drag out fight to the death mm-hmm. and he conks her over the head with like a metal pig statue that's how he finally kills her. When it comes down on her head, it goes like, like a a clang noise. Yeah,
1: I think you you pointed that out to me when we were watching it. Mm. And again,
0: you know, hitting a human head with a metal (laughs) thing in a cartoon will go, but in real life, it probably won't.
1: No, probably not I mean,
0: we could try it.
1: No, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) I see where this is going.
0: Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think those are all sort of deliberate choices and there is something sort of cartoonish about the film that's maybe part of the kind of uh levity that it sort of uh uses to prevent it from being just totally depressing and dark
1: yeah because it's pretty dark
0: yeah um so yeah anything that uh you didn't like about the film
1: uh yeah i got pages okay um why did Buster have to die?
0: Yeah, what that's a really the, interesting They pulled thing. a shining so, thing. Yeah, so that's something I didn't mention in my little plot summary, right? Is that there's this B-plot where that does allow Which us to sort of get out of the, the room. the best
1: part of the movie, by the way.
0: Okay, so we've got a local sheriff who becomes convinced that um, Paul Sheldon has not just wandered off and died in the woods and that some something sinister has happened mm-hmm. and he starts to track down clues and... Mm-hmm he ultimately discovers um, where Sheldon is being held hostage just in time to get shot in the back by
1: Yeah, what uh, the Annie how mm, what ugh, this is such bullshit. See, the best character in this whole movie is the sheriff's wife.
0: Yeah, and she just kind of disappears from yeah, the story. Yeah, th-
1: what? Like I was I was like wait, like like the credits came and I was like no, but Virginia needs like closure and like There should be, like, a whole sequel dedicated to, like, Virginia's (laughs) Revenge.
0: Well, but I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, yeah, maybe they should go back to her. But then it would be like, no, that would be way too sad. I mean, it would be sad, but I was hung up on it. Because the ending of the film is still kind of lighthearted.
1: I know, but I needed needed it, and I was really focused. I was really invested in this B-plot, as we're, you know, calling it. Um, So, you know how I get hung up on, like, dumb shit, though, so, like... It's probably a me thing, but I just really, really loved their dynamic and I, f- I felt robbed.
0: Yeah, those are really great supporting characters. They have great dialogue.
1: Yeah, and... hilarious.
0: Yeah, they're really funny. And like and...
1: You, you get attached. They're so cute because mm-hmm. they act like they're almost teenagers, their relationship. Yeah. The way that they play with each other. And like she acts like he's having an affair and everything, but they're like old people, so it's funny. Yeah. And like you get, like it's wholesome, you know.
0: Yeah, and I'm that's upset. another thing I like. I like about the film is the sort of casting choices. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to say the movie's like diverse since it's all white people. Oh yeah. But it's it's diverse in terms of not casting people who are traditionally like Hollywood y- yeah. beautiful, right? So we've got. James he's like middle aged. Kathy uh, Bates is uh, sort of a, a larger uh, woman, and then you've got the ma- the other supporting characters are um, James Con's agent, um, Lauren Bacall, Lauren Bacall, who's yeah. older, and then the still the a sheriff. fox
1: though, like she fine.
0: Sure, sure. <laughs> um, and then we've got the the sheriff and his uh-huh. wife, who are like in their seventies, yeah. at least. Um and uh yeah really fun characters and you know when i first watched this um i think i had seen the shining before and there's a similar b plot in the shining yes. where the um uh the cook is you know, somehow he's psychically aware that the characters trapped in the Overlook Hotel the, need he, rescuing. he has
1: The Shining as well. Right, I yeah. don't know if they really get into that in the movie. No, they do.
0: They do. do? He explains it to Danny. That's where the the term The Shining comes into the film. I this know, but I,
1: I can't remember what's in the book and what's in the movie.
0: Okay, well, this is where I'm going. Okay. Is, um, so he comes to rescue them, and then as soon as he gets in the door, he gets an axe in the back from uh, Jack Nicholson's character. And um, so then when I saw Misery, it's like almost the same thing happens. You've got this character who's outside of the horror situation who we're cutting back to him periodically as he figures out what's going on and then comes into the rescue and then instantly gets killed. But in both cases, the fact that he has found them allows for resolution of the plot, right? Because they use... Um, the cook, I don't remember his name, unfortunately. Um, I don't either. Uh, they use his uh, snow truck to get out <laughs> um, because Jack Nicholson's character has gone and cut the wires on the um, truck that they would have used to escape. So it's only because he came that they're able to escape. And then similarly in this film, you know, there's like a ticking clock once she kills the cop because he, the people are going to come looking for him. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of precipitates the final showdown between Annie and uh, Paul but um, so I, when I saw that I was like oh okay so this is just what Stephen King always does but then I read the novel of The Shining mm-hmm. and uh, the Cook character doesn't get killed in the book right so I haven't read the book the Misery I don't know what happens in that but it's just kind of a weird coincidence that the film has the exact same thing happen but it apparently is not because Stephen King is like a hack and always writes the same story it's no. just a coincidence.
1: Well, either way, it's frustrating. I'm frustrated.
0: I I don't know. I think that's a strength of the film, though, that what? they kill that character off. Why? Because, well, unless so you've seen we, The Shining, yeah. you don't expect that because we keep cutting... It's been such a big part of the story. You expect him to not suddenly get killed off, so it's shocking when it happens.
1: I mean, I guess. Shocking in like a really upsetting... like anticlimactic way where you've you know did, what? like. I mean it sets just...
0: up the climax right?
1: I guess
0: I guess what you're saying is like you had as much or more emotional investment yes. in him as you yeah, did in a hero totally. so then once Maybe he's killed, more, then you care less about the rest of yeah, the story. Yeah I was like
1: oh well okay
0: yeah so maybe they did, like, too good of a job of making those you, characters like, interesting. They should have been less interesting so that we would have been okay with seeing him get killed off. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Don't make me care about them so much.
0: Okay. Um, you got other stuff?
1: Uh, things that I don't like?
0: Yeah, sure. Or other things you wanted to talk about?
1: Uh, I, I did sympathize with her for a minute. Because, like... I get really attached to fictional stories and like I told you something like this yeah we right? were talking about this okay I don't you want sort of... you to repeat what I said okay because it's very incriminating okay. but
0: I'll wait till you leave and then no, add no it in. I don't
1: think so um, cuz like I get really invested in fictional stories and I could how do I put this without you know sounding like I need to be locked up um, she she's just so you know into her stories and she feels like she needs (laughs) she needs to control it now because like she's got so much invested in it because like she her husband left her right and she's like this sad lonely woman who pretty much only has the misery novels that's like her whole life like that's that's taken up all the space so she's if she doesn't have this, like, what does she have? Nothing. She has, like, nothing to live for. Yeah. So there's a lot writing on that, right?
0: She also seems like she's um, has difficulty understanding that misery is a fictional character and isn't real. So the things that happen to her in the book aren't really happening, mm-hmm. right? So she gets mad at Sheldon when mm-hmm. misery dies. You know, she says, You killed her. How could you kill her? Well, he didn't kill anyone. Missouri's a fictional character. So I think that might be one of the themes of the film. is like the, the dangers of being an author and how you can't really trust your audience to separate fact from fiction and not get too invested in the characters.
1: <laughs> well, I definitely know I can't be trusted to separate
0: fact from fiction. I get real, real caught up. Yeah, so that's one of the ways that um, that character is sympathetic, I think to a lot of people.
1: You think it's not just me?
0: Yeah, I mean, another moment that I think is sympathetic um, is when Annie gets really worked up about the uh, old movie serials that she used to watch as a kid. Oh, yeah. And how there would be a cliffhanger ending. And oh, then at yeah. the in the next week's show, they would resolve the plot by retconning something. So they would, you know, what was it? Rocket Man was strapped into the car and it went over the cliff. But then in the next week at the beginning... Um, of the episode he jumps out of the car at the last second before it went off the cliff and she stands up in the theater and says Mm -hmm. that's not what happened last week Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of people sort of feel the same way they feel angry and cheated when um, something like that happens in fiction where you know the writer basically has written himself into a corner and then cheats in order to get out of a bad situation or get the plot resolution that he wants Mm mm-hmm So that's a moment where maybe we're with her, although we're also laughing at her because of just how worked up she is still, and and sort of, she doesn't realize um, how ridiculous she's coming off.
1: I I guess so. I still, yeah, I understood.
0: Another thing I wanted to talk about is something that I noticed this time, is uh, the theme of swearing or the motif of swearing sort of keeps coming up and it seems like it's an important thing going on in the film. So we mentioned how Annie never swears and she gets really agitated when she reads uh, Paul Sheldon's new book where the characters swear. Um, That's clearly like a a sort of trigger for her madness. Um, So I was thinking maybe this has to do with repression, right? The sort of uh, psychoanalytic idea that by repressing her urges, she's sort of developed a neurosis. Um, so we see that she doesn't swear. We see that she gets mad when it's in the book, and then at the end, when they have their battle to the death, she yells "cock sucker" at him. Is. And so it's like it comes out in that moment. Yeah. Like this, it's she's that sort of uh, wall of repression has broken down, and now it's just pure id. She's just like a pure. Animal. And so when you were saying earlier the scene where we see her true self, that was a scene that I was thinking of. Where um, she says cocksucker. Yeah, where she shouts cocksucker at him oh, and okay. is trying to just beat him to death. Um, that's true. Yeah. Is, cause
1: yeah, you're right.
0: I think maybe that's part of the argument of the film. It's like maybe that's why she's so crazy is that she has sort of uh, repressed the real her under all of this other stuff.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, she, we know she's. Super fake. Especially in the beginning. Like, she plays really dumb. On purpose. And she does a really good job.
0: Yeah. She's much smarter than she lets yes. on. She's and also she's... super anal, though, right? Like, um, she's got the penguin on, in right. the room that yes. always has to face due north or whichever direction it was. Yes. Um, and uh, that's another thing I like about the film is, like, the mise-en-scene is, uh, is not at all traditional... Horror movie, you know horror lighting. It's very bright and colorful, mm, yeah. and the the room is you know sort of idyllic looking, even though it's a space of terror for the character.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so yeah, she she keeps a nice home. She everything is in its right place. Um, she has her happy scrapbook where she you know puts in newspaper clippings and writes. It
1: says like memory lane on the cover. Mm-hmm. But it's full of like horrors, so.
0: Right, which is like a metaphor for her whole character.
1: Yes, it is.
0: But I mean, the swear words that she doesn't like are things like fuck and bastard and cocksucker. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Right, she got
1: mad at bastard.
0: Yeah. Um, And so those are all like sexual curse words. And uh, bastard
1: is a sexual curse word? Sure. I thought it was just like a legitimate child.
0: Yeah, so someone who was conceived out oh, of wedlock. Okay. Well, is a it's bastard. pretty far
1: removed, but okay. Well, I'll maybe allow it's it. A
0: little bit of a reach, but I guess what I'm saying is I feel like there's a sort of undercurrent of repressed sexuality to her character and her whole relationship to Sheldon. Because I mean, that's that's one component of you know real life cases of abduction like this is there's often a, a sexual uh, component to it, and she. It's there in the film. She says that she's in love with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there is there is the sort of menace of, of rape uh, or sexual assault there, but it's never really addressed. It never really uh, comes up where she, yeah. you know, propositions him or Thank threatens God. him with sex or anything like that overtly. But I think in that final uh, battle you could sort of see it come out. It's almost like a sex scene, the way that they're all on top of each other, and then at I the end, they're just sort of like lying like there next all. to each other, all completely spent. There's a sort of sexual dynamic to that scene, I think. Okay. That Maybe it's, you're
1: just a weirdo pervert.
0: It could be. But, you know, they could both be true. You know, I could be a weird <laughs> pervert and just happen to be right as well.
1: True. That is true.
0: Okay, so... Another thing that I was thinking as I was watching it this time is that in order to defeat Annie in the end and win the movie, Mm -hmm. um, Paul has to sort of finally, in a way, give in to her, right? He has to give her what she wants. He has to promise her that he'll finish the book and... Um, have dinner with her and they'll be, happy. you know, live happily ever after, whatever. He has to sort of um, play into her delusion mm-hmm. um, and in a way that he couldn't at the beginning because he didn't understand the rules of the delusion. Um, what it is that she's expecting out of him, what it is that's going to sort of, you know, make her light up and go into happy mode and not foresee that he's about to try to kill her. Um, and I thought that's kind of an interesting... Uh, plot similarity to a lot of other horror movies like often in supernatural movies that's sort of the the journey that the protagonist has to go on like at the beginning of a movie like the changeling the hero is beset by supernatural events, haunting type stuff and he has to find out what is the ghost wants like what is the, what is the logic behind all this paranormal stuff and then he discovers that, you know, it's the, it's the ghost of a child who was murdered, and once he can find out who caused this murder and bring the murderer to justice and put the body to rest, you know, rebury the body, then the hauntings go away. And so something like that happens in a lot of horror movies, I think, where you have to sort of uh, learn about whatever the scary thing is and understand the sort of logic underlying this seemingly random or insane uh, behavior in order to, you know, uh fix it. Um so, I don't know. Did you have any thoughts about that? No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't know how to put that into the form of a question exactly. <laughs> but uh
0: it just seems like something that you see a lot in in horror movies. Like it sort of maybe speaks to the point of the horror genre it's supposed to make us uneasy and scared but at the end it also kind of reassures us that the things that seem to be totally beyond our control or understanding we can eventually get a leg up on them and get the upper hand through just learning about them
1: Mm -hmm. it's pretty deep
0: We never talked about like the really disturbing sequence where she yeah
1: see i was gonna say like do we just not want to talk about that um because i I mean i I don't know what to say other than it's a great sequence horrifying yeah but it's iconic yeah and i you cringed for like a full five minutes while you were watching (laughs) it like i've never seen you cringe that long
0: yes i can i can watch a lot of gory stuff and not be bothered but there's something about i mean there's no blood Maybe if, like, a big fountain of blood spurted out, I would be fine. But the fact that we don't see blood, we just get that very quick shot where we just see the foot I go completely the wrong way. It's and it's very
1: like, realistic. Yeah. And that's horrifying. Yeah. There's so many aspects to it that are just. Ugh. Just haunting. The sounds. Uh,
0: yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, there are certain ways of, like, orchestrating your on-screen violence where, um, you know, there's a lot of ways of doing it where the audience just sits there and chews their popcorn and doesn't really think about it. Mm -hmm. And then there are certain ways of doing it where like, as an audience member, you just can't help but think like, I have feet. I wonder what (laughs) would feel like if one of my feet Uh, went the wrong way.
1: (laughs) Or both of them. Yeah. Also Moonlight Sonata. It's a very eerie song you don't think so
0: no i think of it as uh like a melancholic well i think it's eerie eerie. and
1: i think the fact that it didn't fit at all was like it added to the like creepy factor
0: yeah so in that scene we hear moonlight sonata playing and it's uh yeah it's not as um obvious of an example of this as some other films but there are a lot of like Horror movies or uh really dark suspense movies that'll use this it's almost like a trope where you have like uh really jarring music choice so I'm thinking of like uh um girl with the dragon tattoo there's a scene in like a torture dungeon where the uh villain puts on Enya's sail away um really? so while he's torturing somebody we're hearing this like extremely calm peaceful happy music um there's other examples. Oh, um, yeah,
1: like American Psycho.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what is that? Huey Lewis in yeah, the News. Yeah,
1: Huey Lewis in the News. Also, Reservoir Dogs. Yep. I mean, those are like really, really,
0: really dramatic examples. Yeah. Those so are So this like is a blatant. little, little yeah. more toned down, yes. but maybe a similar kind of effect. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I guess that's it for this episode of Cinematicon Ex Mortis. So join us next time when we'll be looking at White Zombie from 1932 with Bela Lugosi. Uh, That should be fun. Mm
1: -hmm. Am I supposed to say something?
0: I guess not. Okay. I thought you might say something.
1: Nope. Okay. I'm clear.
0: I guess that's everything. All right. So I'll see if I can edit something out of that. (laughs)